0: It's the first Monday of the month, and we're coming to you with responses to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 462.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential.
0: Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahovia. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Once a month, we open up the show to respond to your questions. If you have a question you're thinking about that you'd like some input on from us, potentially on a future episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com feedback, and you can submit it there for consideration. I am joined today as I am almost every month with Bonnie Stahoviak, who is, uh, in addition to my best friend, the host of the Teaching and Higher Ed podcast, and now the author of The Productive Online and Offline Professor. Congratulations again on the new book.
1: Thanks, Dave. And thanks for having me here.
0: I'm honored. Uh, We have several questions to tackle here today. Always lots for us to talk about with leadership. So we're going to see if we can dive in on the first one here from
1: Tony. Tony writes, I've listened a number of times to episode 452 with John Maxwell. I could really relate to the notion of leadership and thinking about people who go the extra mile and when they achieve their dreams along the way. The challenge I have is dealing with people who don't want to grow, and how do I go about serving those people?
0: Tony, thank you so much for this question. I have certainly run into this in the past myself, and I know a lot of folks in our listening community and our academy community have as well. So first of all, I think there's some distinctions here that are helpful to think of. And one of the people that I turn to, to for I think were are really helpful on this, is Kim Scott, who's the author of the book Radical Candor. She's been on the show before. And Kim has this really wonderful model that, you know, it's one of these four quadrant charts. And she really plots out the distinction between performance and how well people are performing their job and the distinction between growth. How much more do they want to learn and continue to excel on? And she makes the distinction of as long as folks are performing, then there's a question of growth. How much more do they want to do more and grow into new skill sets, the next position, uh, challenge themselves in new ways, position themselves for future career opportunities? And she calls those people the superstars. And then the people who are good performers or high performers and do not necessarily have that orientation for whatever reason of wanting to do a lot of growth, of wanting to make a lot of change, of wanting to go and do the next thing. She calls those the rock stars, the people that you can really rely on but aren't necessarily wanting to move forward on the next thing. And then, of course, there's a category of folks who are not performing, and that is a whole other conversation, right? So the first thought I have for your your question here is, hey, that's okay unless it's not. And let me explain what I mean by that. If someone says, hey, I want to either explicitly or more often just by their actions and behaviors and performance conversations, that I'm, I'm here to do this work. I want to do it well. I want to meet or exceed the performance standards. But I'm not necessarily here because I want the next position, because I'm thinking about what's next in my career over the next few years. Right now, this is working really well for me. And as long as they are kidding their poor their core job responsibilities and they're doing those well, then I think there's a tendency for a lot of times for us to think like, oh, well, we have to push people to do more. And I had a bias for that for a long time with I I need to challenge people and continue to encourage them to do more. And I have run into the trouble spot before of pushing people towards something that they don't want. And caring a lot more about a person's growth, but it's not necessarily aligned with where they're going to go, and that that's okay. It doesn't have to be that everyone moves on to the next role or the next position or wants the next opportunity or even wants the next skill set. And as long as they're meeting the job objectives, that's fine. And you still do all the wonderful things you do, caring for people and leading them well and recognition and all the things that we talk about on this show regularly. But those conversations are more about the today and what's going on and the keeping things moving versus the what's next. And the other point I'd make on this is there are different seasons in all of our lives for all of these things. The person who was a superstar and was on the high growth track as far as learning and development five years ago may be the person who is in a very different place today. And Bonnie and I have both been in this place in our careers where there have been times where we have been, I wouldn't say on autopilot by any means, but when our kids were really young and uh, we were navigating parenting for the first time, that is a season of life where (laughs) both of us you know, doing some new things and learning and growth took a little bit more of a backseat. And now we're in a season where that's a little bit less the case and we have a little more flexibility and both of us are a little bit more on a growth trajectory again. And so- I think that knowing that both of those are okay in a lot of situations, and again, as long as someone's performing, if they're not, then that's a whole different conversation. But that's something that I think is really helpful to know is not to force it to meet people where they are. If they want to move forward, great. If they don't, how do you help them to be as effective in the current role as they possibly can be? So I hope that's helpful to you, Tony, on thinking about that in the context of how you serve people well. Let's see if we can tackle the next question here from Russ russ wrote in and said i have a question about interviewing potential hires the software consultancy i work for does a good job of balancing senior and less senior interviewers in job interviews and i've recently started getting more involved in this process due to the recent turnover on our design team we're hiring a lot and shorthanded enough that i'm running into my first solo interview next week i want to do this effectively and i'd appreciate any insight you have other than being an opportunity for me to reflect on what makes a good designer I'm wondering how to assess their potential for growth, given that they're new to this craft, what non-discipline skills should I be looking for, and how to identify them, and how to structure the interview to put that person at ease, rather than the extreme artificiality that usually goes along with the interview process. I've gotten exactly zero training on this, and I'm very open to hearing that these aren't even the right questions to be asking.
1: Uh, Bonnie, what do you think? It isn't often that I quote Dr. Phil. But in fact, it's did, just this one quote. I did not think
0: that's where you were going.
1: <laughs> just just this one quote. I literally think I, I used to watch the Oprah show like at three o'clock. How was I even home at three o'clock? I don't even know. Oh, I think there were things called DVRs that would record yeah, it. Yeah, there this was is that. many years ago. But he would always talk about that the best predictor of future behavior is relevant past behavior. This comes up so much in interviewing. And the reason I bring it up is a, is a number of points. One is interviews, very unreliable measures of someone's success or failure in a job. Recognize that we want to definitely utilize the opportunity to have these conversations, but recognize interviews are notoriously bad. If you can incorporate into the interview process some sort of a skills test that approximates the skills that it would take to be successful in the job, that's really the best and closest you're likely to get, but also looking at relevant past behavior. And oftentimes people identify that on their resume or their CV, but we need to kind of uncover it and see what's behind that got left off of the resume that we may want to know more about. One way of doing this is through behavioral questioning. So rather than asking hypotheticals, hypotheticals are oftentimes some of the weakest interview questions because all you're testing for, and granted all you're testing throughout the entire interview, but much extremely all you're testing is their ability to think about some hypothetical thing and how they would handle it. And oftentimes you're projecting onto the person what the ideal answer is, or what the quote unquote, right answer is. So just saying, you know, how would you handle it if, you know you came in and we were having all these challenges, and the, the, so they're just living in hypothetical to reshape that question and say, "Tell me about a time in your career when you've had to deal with this. They're having to draw from past experience, and it's back to that the best predictor of future behavior isn't to ask about future behavior, it's to ask about that relevant past behavior. You mentioned also trying to keep the person at ease. And I was so glad that you would say that. When we are interviewing, we are all on our best behavior. And, and, and especially if it's field, you might not even get the person's best behavior because they are so nervous and you know, trying to process so much. So helping someone feel relaxed and welcome, keeping in mind that hopefully they're interviewing you. As much as you're interviewing them. So, trying to be as authentic as you possibly can and opening up that opportunity for them to be as authentic as they can, which is certainly a challenge because it's still kind of this staged experience, but there are things that we can do to help with that. When I used to think about this in my less experienced days in my career, I kind of threw any sort of structure out the window. So, it would be, oh, let's not do those scripted interview questions and and you know i might go down a different trail with this person i'm interviewing than another person and what i was inviting without realizing it was bias so there's something in interviewing well actually just in leadership in general called the halo effect so i might ask a question and then discover oh wow we share this thing in common and they're really good at this And then the halo effect says that I disproportionately then amplify other qualities that they have beyond the extent which their experience would warrant there's the opposite of the halo effect, which I don't even know if it has a name, Dave. I'm sure someone's come up with a name for it, but where you might've just gotten not excited about one of their answers, but actually that they would be a good fit for the job. But now you have this bias that they wouldn't be because again, a single answer to a question disproportionately impacted your perception of them. So all of this is opening up opportunities for bias and we can think about all the things we could do to reshape our minds, reshape our hearts, You know, rethink about being more open to people that are different than us. And I really appreciated there was an article in November of 2019 in the Harvard Business Review that was called How the Best Bosses Interrupt Bias. Their theory was rather than relying on being able to remap whatever systemic racism or sexism we might have carried with us, that, that that is a pretty difficult thing to do, and you can't really rely on it that that's going to be help you be as successful as you want to be. So rather than relying on entirely changing minds, you need to interrupt the bias so that the system interrupts the bias instead of relying on someone's willpower or their mental capacity to change their own minds. So this bias interruption, you can build into the interview process at the same time as we're trying to have everybody feel calm and relaxed and that you're approachable. Having a framework around, it doesn't necessarily have to be scripted. I don't appre- I don't feel comfortable when I know someone's reading off of paper scripted questions, but Knowing that we're going to ask about these five areas for each of the candidates that we have can be one bias interrupter. They do talk about other examples in the article. I really encourage people to go look at that. Dave will put it in the show notes. But I would think about absolutely you're right spot on as far as help the person feel comfortable. But if you're like I was in my less experienced days, that doesn't mean that we don't need to have some structure to the interview for ourselves. But then, especially, you mentioned that this time you're going solo. But in group interviews, it's even more important because now you're expanding that capacity for bias to enter in even further because either the halo effect takes over or we got stuck on a rabbit trail of the question and we never asked about another aspect of the job that we did other candidates and then we can't evaluate them all in the most consistent and clear way as we would hope to. So there's so much here. I, I'm so glad that you wrote in to us and I know Dave has some thoughts on this as well.
0: Yeah, everything that Bonnie said, and I'm also thinking about what you asked, Russ, around the what are some of the non-discipline skills to be looking for. I'd recommend episode 301 with Patrick Lencioni. We talked to him about how to find the ideal team player. That's the title of one of his books. And he talks about the values of hungry, humble, and smart in that conversation about what are some of the key things from a person's behavior and, and personality that you want to be watching for In conversations and in interviews. And Lencioni makes the point too that, you know, it's hard to do in the interview process. And one of the things that I love that he brought out in that conversation, and I always find myself encouraging those who are doing uh, hiring to do this is to reinforce what Bonnie said. Yes, absolutely. Make people comfortable, put them at ease. And I would also encourage you to consider doing something that they're not necessarily expecting. So you get them out of the structured formal process for a bit and get to see what it is that they look like and behave and how they interact in another situation that's beyond just sitting at the desk and having a formal interview. So to the extent that you are trying to assess skill level on things, Being able to do something that demonstrates that or puts that person in that situation is helpful. So for example, when Bonnie and her colleagues at her university are interviewing a candidate for a faculty role, they do all their due diligence, of course, of reviewing the resumes and doing the committee meetings and all that. And often they do a test teach. So they'll then have that candidate come in and uh, they'll bring in five or 10 students or a class. And they'll have them uh, do a session for 20 or 30 minutes. And you discover things all the time through that, Bonnie, both good and bad, right? Sometimes a candidate that you may not be as excited about, all of a sudden you see them in a classroom you're like, wow, this person's great with students or the, or the opposite. Someone who looked great in the interview may not interact as well in the classroom. And because that's such an important skill set for that role, to the extent you can assess that is great. So you could ask them to do something while they're there or help out with a project or maybe even bring someone on as a consultant for a project for a short period of time. And that way you have the chance, both of you, to decide if this is the right fit. The other thing that I think is, I don't think too hard to do, but is just to get out of the formality of it and go across the street to a coffee shop and have a conversation there. Or I think Patrick Lencioni made the point where we had that conversation like, well, you know, take them to, to do something with you, like go visit a client or go pick up your kids on the way home when they're in the car or something like that. I mean, you know, I mean, There's obviously some HR procedures around this and organizations you have to be mindful of, but if you get someone out into the real world in a situation that they're not expecting as much in an interview situation, all of a sudden you start to see how they interact in situations where they don't have a predicted script for it, and you get to see things that you wouldn't see in a formal scripted interaction. How do they respond to handling an unexpected situation. How do they treat people? What do they do when something happens that they're not expecting? Because you want to have a sense of that before you offer someone a position in your organization. So there you go, Russ. Hope that's helpful for a few suggestions on uh, what you may do and how to approach it.
1: Our next question, Dave, is from Sammy. I had a question about being a manager. As a manager, you come across different personalities and there are different ways to deal with them. We often are shown how to do personality tests for ourselves, but is there a way to create and fill one out for people you manage? Is there a template to follow or a book on this? Or is this something that shouldn't be looked at for privacy concerns?
0: Sammy, thank you so much for the question, and I also appreciate you thinking about this from a privacy standpoint. This is something that I have found that a lot of organizations and leaders don't necessarily think about privacy when it comes to assessments and there is the assumption that, okay, we're as a team going to do a personality test and everyone's going to take the assessment and then we're going to distribute everyone's results to everybody. And that may be in practice what ultimately happens, but there's a way to do that that I think is, is helpful and mindful. So more on that in a moment. So as far as frameworks, there's two that I think are really helpful. I've seen a lot of organizations utilize and I think are also really helpful at not necessarily just putting people into a box, but allowing people to really talk about their personalities and their preferences in a way that then opens up further conversation, which is whenever I'm doing an assessment, my goal normally with that assessment is to shorten the amount of time it would take us to figure out some data points just in regular interactions. And then secondarily, for that to then generate more conversation about how do we Handle that, and what do we do, and how do we leverage each other's preferences and strengths? So, the two tools that I like for that are DISC. Uh, DISC is a very popular framework, it's based on four different dichotomies. We're actually in the process right now of putting together an episode on diving into DISC in detail. Uh, My friend Tom Henschel is also, in addition to all his other talents, an expert at utilizing DISC well. So, we're planning to have him on the show to talk more about how, as leaders, we could really utilize that model. We also have an unbelievably talented expert coach who works with our academy members and goes through a DISC process when we begin our journey together in the academy for the year. Uh, his name is Doug McRae. He is fabulous on helping people to discover more through DISC. And that's a really wonderful assessment that um, really helps you to understand where some of your preferences are and your tendencies. And it can open up then a conversation for either an individual or for a team to do more. Another framework that I love, which is not personality, but it really kind of relates more to talents, is StrengthsFinder. And StrengthsFinder is really wonderful at being able to illuminate uh, where your core talents are, also on the bottom of the list where the things that are not really your core talents and where you tend to default to. And that has been a really useful framework that many leaders and many organizations have used that often opens up. Some wonderful conversation about how do we then leverage each other's talents in a way that's really useful. And the other thing I like about StrengthsFinder is that it gives you a language to start to use that well. And there's also not a right or wrong. And same thing with DISC. There's not a right or wrong. These are the different talents. These are the different preferences. And depending on which ones you fall into, then you know you can do a lot with that. And then the the last thing I'd say is if You can allow people to self-disclose a bit. So getting back to the privacy piece is um, if you do an assessment of handing the results to the person and then allowing them to talk about the results before you necessarily go in and just plot everyone's results up on a chart or something and assume that the assessment is right. Assessments are wonderful. They're great tools. Like every tool, they are imperfect and sometimes they're wrong. And so, If you can provide some data through an assessment to each individual, and then they can then talk about what they've learned from that, what are their preferences, where do they self-select when you have conversations about it in a room, how do they then go and have conversations with friends and family and spouses and coworkers about those preferences and tools? I think it's a wonderful thing that you can do for people and so helpful to be able to then figure out how do you really help to honor each other's strengths and preferences? And also, how do you help others on the team to be able to complement where people aren't as strong?
1: Dave was emphasizing this, you know, making sure that people have an opportunity to self-disclose. That's an actual choice. There are things that we can do in the process that would give people the impression that they don't really have a choice. As an example, one of the things that I like to put together is a matrix. We use StrengthsFinder with my various teams that I lead. And I really do like StrengthsFinder for the reasons that Dave cited. If you were to read any of the strengths, they all sound like good things. So there's no judgment. At some of the other tools, it's a little easy to sort of misunderstand. I'm thinking about the Myers-Briggs specifically. The last letter is either perceiving or judging. And judging doesn't sound great. But actually, if you read what it is and you understand what it is, it's not at all what it sounds like um, in our in our traditional ver- vernacular A way not to help people feel like they had an opportunity to decide not to share would be to start sending that matrix around and fill it in as people filled it in. So there's like growing and mounting pressure to share your results. So I would hold back and wait until everyone had a chance to decide if they would like to share their information or not. And if they don't want to share their information, then don't include their name and just leave it blank. I mean, take the name completely off the thing so it's not obvious that they haven't shared that information. That's just one way to do the self-disclosure. You definitely want to let people choose. You want to also recognize some of the limitations Dave talked about that they can be wrong. They also can be misunderstood. There also is some nuance to it. So we never want to say that, you know, there's this many types of people in the world or there's I mean, human beings are far more complex than that is. However, Dave and I have both found these tools to be incredibly helpful in our marriage in our work relationships and our friendships and our families to really help us understand other people, even though we know we're not understanding every aspect of them. But to be able to know, as one example, the difference between someone who draws their energy from being around people to someone who needs to be alone in order to recharge their batteries and enjoy being around people. Not that introverts don't enjoy being around people, but they need those opportunities to recharge. And I'll tell you something else. When I Dave and I both got certified in the Myers Briggs, I had this huge revelation. And that was, I always tested, as, or sorted is the better word to use, sorted as an, an introvert 100%. That, by the way, is not a strength of it, that's how clearly I was sorted. I was sorted clearly 100% as an introvert, but that's because I didn't understand the interplay with the other aspects of the Myers-Briggs. So I am extroverted in terms of feeling. So if we're sitting down and we're talking about fears that you have or or troubles or joy of seeing your child get to do what I mean, if, if we're sharing about feelings, I am so energized. I can lose track of time. And I just, I love those opportunities. If we are talking about the weather, if we're talking about what you ate the last time we came to this restaurant, if we're just, I turn right into an introvert and need to be away from you <laughs> so that I can recharge <laughs> my batteries because I want to be talking about things that are meaningful in life. And sometimes we talk for talk's sake. So those are just a few thoughts around it. I just, I really wanna caution you to definitely get the value out of these tools, but help other people feel safe in using them. In that they don't feel like they're typecast or being judged, or that that you really recognize there's a lot of nuance in human behavior and personality.
0: There's also a lot of experts that are great on handling this well with Team Sammy. And sometimes it's helpful as a leader to step aside and to allow someone else to come in and have this conversation. I mentioned my colleague, Doug McRae, and also a person who's extraordinarily talented on this is Lisa Cummings in the works with StrengthsFinder. She's a wonderful, stronger teams program now, where she, in addition to just helping teams to go through StrengthsFinder is really to utilize it well consistently over time. And so uh, I'll link to that for those that that may uh, be of interest to as well. So Sammy, let us know what you decide to do. I'd love to hear. Our next question is from Laura. Laura wrote in and said, I'm an educator who has been seeking a leadership role in administration for a couple of years now. In this process, I've been volunteering for countless committees at my school and accepting adjunct leadership roles along with my regular teaching load. This work paid off uh, when I was offered an assistant principal position, but there's a small problem. The new school is small and cannot afford to offer me a salary anywhere close to what I was making as a teacher, plus all the other stipends I was doing for extra work. I really want the new position, but I worry about taking a big leap backward in my compensation. Thank you so much for considering this. Bonnie, uh, what do you think?
1: This reminds me so much of one point in my career when I was able to get a job, actually, I was about to say when I was able to get a job I wasn't qualified to hold, that actually happened to me a number of times in my career (laughs) (laughs) as I look back. And I've really enjoyed conversations I've been able to have with people because this does come up a lot in terms of our pay. And sometimes a company or a particular leader is willing to take a chance on us. And we get a job we absolutely have no business being in. And when we can have these conversations with humility and and humor, and recognize, I'm not literally saying like your experience is worthless, but truly, when you get promoted into a position you've never been in before, we can either look at that as, you know, I deserve to be here and I deserve to be paid the highest. This is, by the way, is not what you're saying. So let me finish my example. So when I was put into a position of vice president for the first time in my career, I was actually happened to be vice president of human resources, so I had access to the information of what the other vice presidents made. And I spent such a long time being bitter about, you know, they get paid so much more than I do and, and wanting there to be more equity in my own salary. I didn't have the years of experience that they had. And looking back now, I was bitter, but I didn't realize the gift I was being given because that experience, while it wasn't monetarily going to pay off as well at that particular point in my life. In the future, it absolutely paid off and has continued to pay off if you are purely looking at it in monetary terms. Now, let's be clear. I don't know your financial situation. I also happen to believe that there is still a whole lot of different types of biases in our workplaces and I don't spend a lot of time thinking about this but I can guarantee you that throughout my life I have been impacted by gender bias as it relates to my pay and Laura I'm sorry so have you too so we wait I mean and th- there are lots of other different kinds of bias too so I don't I don't want to pretend like I understand your financial situation I don't want to pretend like you're not susceptible to having some kind of bias, even though you didn't mention that as a consideration, you're trying to decide, should you take this job? I would consider two things. Can you afford to take this job? Is this going to be a job that if you were to take it, is going to cause a lot of stress in your family and make you very susceptible to having some seriously challenging financial times? That's a real thing to consider. If you're able to set that aside and say, no, I can still easily pay my bills. I can still maintain savings. I can be moving forward toward financial goals. It just isn't quite as lucrative as what I have now. It doesn't get me quite as far as I'd like to. I would submit to you that you have an opportunity to actually get paid for this down the road. Your next vice principal role. Your next principal principal role, that this is building a foundation of experience for you, that while you may not get to have the compensation for it now the way you'd like to at a smaller school, that if you cast a vision for that school, you set goals for that school, that it may be that you're able to grow the school and it even has the finances to be able to pay you better in the future, or at the very least, to be able to have you well-equipped for going to get that next role, at a larger school, so I'm just a little, a little bit of thoughts. I'm excited for you. I hope you're able to do it, and I, I'm just excited to hear if you're, if you're up for writing us back and letting us know how things go.
0: I love what Bonnie said here. Two additional thoughts. Uh, one is a tactical thing. It used to be that making a decision like this to take a position with lower salary could follow you for a lot longer as a paper trail. Now, there are increasingly laws, there are laws here in many places here in the United States, that future employers are not allowed to ask for salary history. And I think that that's a net positive for many people, especially those who have been the victims of gender bias and and all the things that Bonnie just mentioned. So that's a wonderful thing. And it sets up what Bonnie just described of then opening up the opportunity to make an investment in yourself in a position that may pay a little less, but to be playing the long game. The other piece of this that I don't think this is the situation at all, Laura, from how you framed it and and what you've discussed, and it sounds like there's a lot of transparency about salary. That said, I think all of us owe it to ourselves to go out and, yes, trust, but verify. Go look at the other small schools like this in the area. Go look at some of the research sites online. And just check to make sure that, you know, truly the salary is reflective of that size of a school and that kind of a position. Sounds like in this case it is, but there are situations where it may seem that way in other opportunities and other roles, and it isn't necessarily. And there's other components, and maybe there's bias coming in that. And so I think that's a worthy checkpoint for all of us. Assuming that's the case, and the head, the head pieces are there, then there's a hard question, is does your heart want to do this? Given the financial realities, given the lower pay for it season of your career, is this where your heart wants to go? And Bonnie and I have both made decisions in our careers, both of us multiple times, where the right tactical decision to make more money was not the decision that we chose at that time. And we went with our heart. And in the short term, it was not as great for all the financial reasons. And uh, in the long term, for us, it's worked out. And I've just never gone wrong in my career by following my heart. And so for whatever that's worth, I hope that this is helpful to you in thinking about what you may do. And let us know. I'd love to hear. If today's conversation was valuable to you, several related episodes you'll want to investigate. One of them is episode 301, How to Get the Ideal Team Player with Patrick Lencioni. We talked about interviewing effectively in the recruiting process. And in that episode, Patrick shared some of the key practices that they use at their firm, The Table Group, and also the work that he teaches in uh, his book, The Ideal Team Player. It's a model that many organizations have used with success. Patrick talks in detail on episode 301 on how to utilize that model and what to be looking for in your interview process. Also recommended is episode 302, How to Challenge Directly and Care Personally with Kim Scott. Uh, we talked about the distinction earlier on rock stars and superstars. Kim, in addition to that wonderful model, has this beautiful model around radical candor and balancing being direct, but also caring well for people. Episode 302 is a wonderful introduction to that. I'd also recommend episode 371, Get Smart About Assessments with Ken Nowak. We talked a little bit about assessments in this episode, and in that conversation... Ken and I looked at the big-picture perspective, the different kinds of assessments out there, why organizations might want to utilize them, uh, what are the different families of assessments. So we don't go into detail on one assessment, instead we're looking more broadly and strategically around assessments in general. So that's episode 371, if you'd like to dive in there. And then finally, we mentioned the episode with John Maxwell recently, episode 452, How to Motivate Leaders. You can find all of those on the coachingforleaders.com website. When you get there, you'll be able to activate your free membership, and that will give you access to the entire library, searchable by topic since 2011, plus all of the free resources inside of our membership That includes the weekly leadership guide that comes to you every Wednesday. I'm constantly on the hunt for the best articles, other podcast episodes, videos, resources online that'll help support your leadership development, plus the entire episode library, the member casts, my own personal library, the book notes, and a ton more that are inside the free membership portal. All of those you can access by going over to Coaching for Leaders. setting up your free membership. You'll be off and running with us. Next week, our topic is how to balance care and performance when leading virtually. A very important conversation right now. How do we do that? And who else would we talk to except Jonathan Raymond, the creator of the accountability doc, how to keep folks accountable online. Join us for that conversation next week. Have a wonderful week and see you next Monday. Take care.